Hello, and welcome to Relevate Presents Scholars Ship, the podcast where we use real research to analyze, scrutinize, and humanize your favorite TV and movie couples. I'm your host, Eric Goodcase. Hello, and welcome to a special blended edition of Relevate Presents Scholarship. We're going to be talking about the movie Stepmom today, starring Susan Sarandon, Julia Roberts. And with us to talk about that is Dr. Caroline Sanner. Uh, Dr. Sanner, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, Yeah, I've been really excited to do this. I have not seen this movie in a long time, so I, I went back and watched it and I really enjoyed it. But before we get into talking about Uh, the movie, just giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the audience, a little bit about what you research, why it's something you're passionate about, or something to kind of introduce the topic to the audience. Yeah. So I'm an assistant professor at Virginia Tech, and I broadly study family structure transitions, such as divorce and remarriage, stepfamily formation and, and stepfamily dissolution. I'm interested in how family members navigate these transitions, both intrapersonally, so within themselves, the processes that they're going through, but also with each other. How do they build and maintain healthy relationships across family structure transitions? Basically, I have this radical idea that divorce should be viewed as a normative family transition, as opposed to one that's inherently bad or inherently disruptive. Instead of viewing divorce as a symbolic representation of failure, like a failed marriage, right? I would like us to view it as an opportunity to grow and expand our support systems, both for adults and children. It can introduce new family members, right? Such as step-parents that really creates a village of parenting support, both for parents and for kids if we let it. So I I take a strengths-based approach to studying complex families in my research, while recognizing kind of the larger cultural norms and structures and institutions that do make divorce and and remarriage uh, difficult sometimes for families. Absolutely. And I love that idea in terms of changing the way we think about it, because sometimes, you know, speaking uh, more anecdotally as a therapist and having either individuals who just recently got divorced or um, children who are just going through uh, or parents are going through a divorce or individuals who are contemplating divorce, it's always this like doomsday discussion. Whereas if we can even think about, you know, what could life look like on the other side and how do we make it positive for people and what are the ways that we can work towards growth as opposed Mm -hmm. to just kind of like viewing it as this tragedy on, on the, on the horizon. Absolutely. And I get it because there are hurt feelings involved when Mm -hmm. divorce happens, right? But as long as we marry for love, we will divorce because we fall out of love, right? <laughs> and, and I really think that it's so common and still we really view it as this non-normative family transition, something that is inherently negative for families. And I just don't think that it has to be. So, and I almost forgot joining us is the brain to my pinky, Dr. Denzel <laughs> Jones. <laughs> Denzel, how you doing? I'm doing great. 
Only because I understand the reference. I'm wondering for those who don't understand the reference. It's better if they don't. They're just going to think it's like they're going to think it's parts of the body. Are they thinking like it's just a pinky? Yeah. With the brain in the pinky? <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> if listeners don't know the pinky in the brain reference, we got to direct them to pinky in the brain cartoon. <laughs> I think right. they're bringing it back, right? Or they, they brought back Animaniacs. Was that part of it? Does anyone know? I don't know. No. Our viewers at home just sent us an email. <laughs> Drop it in the comments. Is Pinking the Brain back on the new Animaniacs? Because we don't, we don't, we're not aware yet. <laughs> anyway, so we're talking about Stepmom today. Um, Denzel, have you ever seen this movie? <laughs> I have not. Okay. <laughs> so instead of, I, just, I always have to check. Dr. Sanner, what's your relationship like with this movie? When did you first see it? What do you think of it? What, what's kind of the reaction you have just thinking about the movie? I love this movie. I love this movie. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I was young. And in college, I I wrote a term paper on this movie. I have rewatched it countless times as an adult. I love it. I recently made my partner watch it. He had not seen it prior to us sitting down together. There's so many reasons I love it. First and foremost, there are not, from my perspective, good guys or bad guys in this movie. Every character is relatable. Every character's perspective is relatable. There are not big pivotal moments in the movie. To me, it feels more like an accumulation of of real life daily events that families and especially families going through family structure transitions, such as divorce and remarriage encounter. I love this movie. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, similarly, I saw it a long time ago and I, I think I was a teenager, but I don't have the memory of like when or why I watched it or my reaction to it. Uh, but I rewatched it again, obviously for the podcast and it was just a really fun watch. And I really like what you said about there not being good guys and bad guys, because I feel like the characters are very flawed, but in, like you said, in relatable ways, but they don't, you know, try to play up one of the characters as morally on the right or wrong in a sense. And that is something that's really hard to do in movies because so many times in movies, we're trying to like send some kind of message, right? We're trying to, and it's really easy to do that when we have a character that represents the right way to do things. Whereas when you have characters that are, you know, flawed, do some right things, do some wrong things, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more difficult potentially to like tell the story in a way that, you know, brings across this message and they do such a good job of, navigating that and still kind of like overall telling a message at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Cause there are definitely times where you are not you like specifically, but we are as the audience, like really not fans of certain characters. And sometimes where we really connect to those characters, uh, can connect to why they might've acted in ways that we don't appreciate or whatever. So there's definitely a lot of like wrestling with that, that happens, I think, and wrestling with what they're doing. And I also like what you said about, you know, it's very real life in the sense there's not like big moments. And again, same thing, right? When we tell stories that are, you know, an hour and a half, two hours long, we need big moments. Whereas this really is just kind of like, it feels kind of flowy in real life and there's ups and downs and not in like a very predictable way. Like those ups and downs kind of just kind of come and go almost. Yeah. Yeah. And the movies that do exist or TV shows that do exist about complex families tend to center more on the relationship between ex-spouses. And there's some of that in this movie, but it does center the relationship between the mother and the stepmother. And the nature of that relationship is so rarely represented in 
film, even in research. My research is, is looking at that more and, and more. I'm actually getting ready to do a project on mother, stepmother allies. But in general, the nature of that relationship is just so underrepresented, underexplored. There's not even a word to describe the relationship between mothers and stepmothers in the way that there is for ex-spouses or step-parent, stepchild. There's no word to describe that relationship. And I think it reflects a cultural assumption that that relationship doesn't exist. It's not typically a strong or sensual relationship in families, but it could be. And, and I think that this movie illustrates that really well. Yeah. And it, it's almost assumed that it's bad. So right. like a no relationship would almost be uh, in expectations, almost see it seen as like positive mm-hmm. uh, because it's not negative. And whereas we really think about it, like in this example, there could be really positive relationships between mom and stepmom or dad and stepdad or whatever the case might be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's an assumption that these two characters, not in the film, but in general, mothers, stepmothers, fathers, stepmothers, that they are inherently in conflict or in competition with one another, that they're, that they're in competition. And so I like that this movie rewrites that script. Yeah. And it's obviously very complicated. We're going to get into a lot of that. But before we do it, you, you know, you brought up a really interesting point in terms of it not being represented in media, in terms of this kind of step-parent relationship. You don't see a lot of divorce in TV and movies. And, you know, I, I was racking my brain the other day to try to think of some examples. And it's just something that's really underrepresented, especially when we compare it to what you were saying earlier and how this could be a very normative event for families. And I was just kind of wondering what your thoughts on that as you think about how, you know, how this comes up or just the representation of things like divorce in uh, media. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. I think that it's done in part to simplify the narrative, to strip away some of that structural complexity in families, makes things less messy, but that's not more realistic increasingly for a large proportion of of families in the US and globally. So it's unfortunate that that complexity isn't represented. It's such um, a ripe area for great narratives, great storylines that really unpack those complex relationships. I grew up watching the Brady Bunch. (laughs) I ask my undergraduate students every semester if they've seen it. And the proportion of of students who have seen the Brady Bunch is just drastically (laughs) decreasing. Absolutely. But it's very, for those who have seen it, it's very easy to forget that the Brady Bunch is a step family. It is a step family that is formed post-bereavement, so after the biological mother and father and those, of those two families have passed away, mom and dad remarry. And, and so the children in that family are step-siblings, but it receives almost no attention in any of the storylines within the Brady Bunch. Any conflict that does manifest in the episodes is neatly, cleanly resolved within 30 minutes, right? It's a, it's a very unrealistic portrayal of step-families. So it's interesting that step families in particular are kind of represented as overly negative, like the wicked stepmother stereotype, or overly yeah. positive as essentially reconstructions of nuclear families. Those those stereotypes aren't helpful either. So we have very little representation of just realistic divorce and step family dynamics. Yeah, I love that you brought up the Brady Bunch because that was something I had not thought of, and I haven't thought of like the overly positive. I always think of like the Disney movies with like Cinderella and like the step-parent having to be evil. And it always has to come via death. Disney Mm. can't have divorce. I don't know if that's the (laughs) case, but 
Um, it always has, and I, I feel like death is worse. I don't know why that's like the preferred narrative device, but what do I know? Maybe it's just cleaner because the other person's not involved or something like that. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But it just seems to be like in you know TV shows or movies where we have some kind of representation of a family transition, whether it's blended family or a single parent. So many times it's around death as opposed to divorce or something that you know might be more uh, narrative and maybe less tragic. You know, I don't know why we have to kill off all our parents for Disney movies. That doesn't seem right. But yeah, so I'm glad you brought up the Brady Bunch because that kind of brings up a whole different thing. And it made me think about some other examples I hadn't thought of that I don't remember enough about. Because um, Cheaper Diet by the Dozen, another example of that, isn't that same thing or is that different? I haven't seen it. Not going to lie. Oh, I have seen it, but I do think it's a first married family with oh, okay. 12. Yeah. yeah. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Okay. The number of children you would, it's it's a understandable assumption to think that it's a remarried sure. family given the size of it. I think it's a first married family. Okay. Never mind. I was trying to think of, there's one I'm trying to think of. It's not that movie then. It's a different movie where there's like lots of kids and there was a marriage, but you know, anyway. Yours, mine, and ours. That's a- Maybe that's what it was. Mm, that's a movie. Yeah. Okay. That may be what I was thinking of. Come on, Eric. It's in the title. <laughs> That's true. That one would have been a lot easier if I had thought about that. But yeah, I think you're right. I couldn't remember um, the storylines for them. But yeah, so let's get more specifically into Stepmom. And we'll probably jump around in terms of what we talk about. But I always like starting with like the opening scene because I think there's always something kind of like fun being communicated. And in this movie, it really is kind of a situation where Julia Roberts' character, the stepmom, is in kind of one of those frantic mom situations, trying to get the children up for school or up and ready for, I guess, um, Susan Sarandon, the mom character, was coming to pick them up. So it wasn't, maybe it wasn't for school, but in trying to navigate these parenting duties that are kind of like thrust into her life after having not had them before. So it was your kind of your first reaction as you're watching this kind of like fun, silly representation of this very real kind of situation. Yeah. I love how accurately it portrays the experiences that a lot of women, a lot of stepmothers I've interviewed have described to me that they are thrust into an ongoing system of child rearing without much preparation if they don't have children of their own, as you know, Julia Roberts in this movie does not. I think that in particular, mothering ideologies, ideas about the uh, naturalness, so to speak, of maternity for women, that this should come easily and naturally for women, is unrealistic and sets women and stepmothers in particular not up for success, right? So I, I think that watching her run around trying to fulfill these responsibilities that she, A, doesn't have much preparation for, and B, isn't really appreciated for, certainly by the stepchildren. And and there's not a lot of affirmation on behalf of her partner either that, that she's, you know, doing her best, doing this well. It's a really unsupported kind of experience for women who are transitioning into this role. And it can be frustrating. A lot of the women I've interviewed, they say, I'm I'm running around, I'm doing all of these things. I'm trying to get the kids ready, trying to, you know, feed them, do the laundry, but I'm just the stepmom, so I have to butt out. So on one hand, you're expected to fulfill all of these mothering responsibilities, and then on the other hand, you're expected to butt out as a step parent. So you're really kind of at the intersection of these contradictory guidelines for expected behavior, right? That as women, as mother figures, you're supposed to be highly involved. You're supposed to fulfill these kinds of child rearing 
tasks. And then as the step parent, you're supposed to be appropriately distanced um, or less centered within the family. And so you see that in this opening scene. And, and I love it for that reason. Yeah. And I love that you brought up this kind of like narrative of this like naturalness of motherhood that people who are born with the uterus have this magical power that they know exactly what to do all the time. And this narrative, in a sense, can sometimes be seen as, oh, that's kind of like harmless because it's positive. Like, oh, we have a harmless stereotype. But really, this narrative can have some negative impacts, too. And like some of the research I've seen on things like postpartum depression, you know, a lot of the experiences that women experience with postpartum depression are sometimes related to that feeling like, oh, I don't have this magical feeling of what to do, or it's not this, you know, it's not coming as naturally as I thought mm-hmm. it was. So even though it seems like it's kind of like this positive stereotype in a sense, it also can be a harmful narrative as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. For all women, you're right, for all mothering roles. And for stepmothers, perhaps in particular, an expectation that this is supposed to come easily, naturally, not just fulfilling the mothering responsibilities, but the idea that you should be that, that you're expected to love your stepchildren easily and immediately love mm. and, and building relationships. This takes time, especially yeah. in the context of step parent, step child relationships. So all of these ideas of, yeah, the supposed naturalness of, of maternity and it, 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 you're right. It doesn't set really anyone up for success, but I think especially stepmothers. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about kind of, let's, let's stay on this topic in terms of the gendered narratives, because I mm-hmm. feel like um, this story would be very different if we took a stepdad's father approach because of these expectations. And I'm thinking specifically about the fact that both Julia Roberts character and her partner's character, I already forgot. I, I have the names written down. I should start using the names. Luke. Luke. Luke is the dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Luke and Isabel both have very demanding jobs that they can't take a lot of time out for. And when the kids are with them, it's very rare to see them interacting with dad. Dad's not the one who has like the primary childcare responsibilities in this narrative. And I just thought that was a very interesting thing. The only time we see dad and children alone is where he kind of does something fun, right? They mm-hmm. go into the park and do like the, the, the boat. I uh, have a very nice talk, but it was like, it's the only time that you really see like, him taking primary responsibility of childcare. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Research on post-divorce parenting in particular, we don't have a lot of information on in the plot about the exact nature of the custody arrangement, but you get the sense that it's about 50-50. But especially when mothers have primary custody and fathers see the children less often, it's quite common for fathers to kind of fulfill that fathering role of being the fun parent and and for mothers to be quite frustrated and feeling like they're the the bad guy all of the time, right? The ones that have to enforce homework and chores and this sort of thing. But it's interesting, even in the context of dad having repartnered, that you still see his fulfillment of this more fun role and and her fulfillment of doing the uh, less fun work, (laughs) like getting the kids ready for school. Yeah. And even just the expectations of her bringing them to her work as opposed to him bringing into his work or something along those like him taking time off instead of her taking time off. Because again, they both have very demanding jobs. It's not a matter of like, oh, his job is demanding and hers isn't. They both seem to get paid really well. They're both pretty involved in terms of their careers. Yet again, it's never even like kind of mentioned or discussed that maybe dad would take them to Mm -hmm. work or dad would do some of these things. Yep, absolutely. We know from research on 
first married couples too, that in different sex partnerships, women tended to do more of that domestic work, even when they're working full time. Yep. And, and also the, the cognitive work of, of keeping track of things in your mind as Isabel's doing in, in the story, um, when the kids get off, what their schedules are, that's a, a burden that she's carrying that you don't see Luke carrying much of uh, in the plot. But yeah, so it's interesting too that we have a lot of research that stepfathers tend to have a, an easier time developing relationships with stepchildren than stepmothers. Stepmothers in particular seem to be in a position where they're expected to do all of this work and it's difficult for the stepchildren to to adjust to that. It's yeah. interesting that mothers, stepmothers have a, a more difficult time. A lot of research supports that they they in particular, kids tend to rate their relationships with stepmoms as less close than their relationships with stepdads. And I think that these gendered dynamics have a lot to do with that. Absolutely. And, in this, and I think it's important to note too, this isn't to say that Luke's like a bad parent or a bad person. It really oh, no. is just these these um, societal expectations that exist, you know, it's just something that might not have ever like, you know, crossed their minds in terms of like, Oh, maybe I could do more, do this differently. It's just these, these expectations that are kind of set up. And again, sometimes we think about it as harmless in the sense of like, if someone says, Oh, are you babysitting your kids to a dad? And how like that can sometimes be silly, but it also can like funny in a way, but it also is kind of like, setting up this harmfulness of like dads not having the same expectations. And then for moms having all this, like you said, the the mental load that comes with not just the duties of having to like do things around the house, but also hanging on to like that idea of like managing schedules and managing kids at and kind of uh, potentially worrying about or um, thinking about things in the future that could be coming up that Mm -hmm. isn't as expected for a male partner in a different gender um, relationship. Absolutely. And for stepmoms in particular, all of the research points to both that they're expected to to fulfill these tasks, but also that they are not in a position where they can discipline or be authority figures within the family. So you're fulfilling partial responsibilities, but have no kind of ground to stand on for being a disciplinarian, which is challenging when you're asked to fulfill certain parenting responsibilities, but not others. Yeah. It's almost like setting up for the kind of like the boundary pushing that you see with kids and the things we see in in the movie where Jenna Malone's character, again, I need to, I need to write down the names. Um, Anna. Anna, Anna um, feels a little bit more brave in terms of the things that she can say to mm. Julia Roberts character, Isabella, because you know, there is kind of this expectation that yeah, she's in charge, but like, she's not my mom. She doesn't have the same kind of power over me. Yeah. I love Anna's character. I love so Anna's character. So much fun. Yeah. Yeah. She plays so well a role that we know is is quite common for children, especially preteens or adolescents who are going yeah. through parental divorce. She represents so much of, of these feelings so beautifully. And the fact that her younger brother, Ben, has a really different emotional reaction just aligns perfectly with what we know about sibling differences and the responses that we have to parents' divorce and remarriage. Yeah, can you say that more about that, especially in terms of age, in terms of like either maybe older age children at age of remarriage or repartnering or younger age children, how that can be very different? Yeah, older children in general, right, have more memories of their family life before the divorce. And so this tends to make divorce more difficult. 
children tend to report less closeness, less warmth, less parental involvement after their parents remarry. So older children in particular are worried about, right, and extremely sensitive to perceived changes in in their relationships with their parents when step-parents enter the picture. It's really common for, for kids to feel like their relationship has taken a backseat to their parents' new relationship with the step-parent. And you you get a lot of that when you see Anna. There's one point where Isabel is presenting the puppy to mm-hmm. uh, the kids, right? In this, in this really lovely attempt to bond with them. I mean, who wouldn't be thrilled about getting a a sweet, cute little golden puppy. Um, it's a very adorable dog. It's adorable. But Anna completely rejects this attempt by Isabel to bond, right? And and she says something like, I'm allergic to dogs. And Isabel says, oh, your dad didn't tell me that. And she says um, something to the effect of, well, he wouldn't know because he's never around much anymore, right? So she's clearly feeling like she is losing her relationship with her dad to this new person. Yeah. and. It's so, I used to teach in Missouri, I taught relationship education and divorce education classes for parents who were divorcing and had minor age children. They had to attend a program called Focus on Kids. And so I taught this on, on Wednesday nights. And it's, it's really common for, for parents when they repartner to be really excited about the person that they're dating. And so they want this person to be around all the time. They assume that their kids are going to really like this person too. And in their enthusiasm for their new sweetheart to bond with their kids, they kind of forget to carve out one-on-one time with their children to just mm-hmm. remind the kids that they're not going anywhere, that that one-on-one relationship is being prioritized by parents, right? And, and it's so well-intentioned. Like parents are just, I think, excited about their kids bonding with this new person. And that's great. We do know that when parents facilitate efforts to bond as a, a whole step family, as a unit, that that can be good for feelings of step family cohesion. But it's only effective to the extent that kids don't feel like their relationship with their parents is threatened, right? And so really remembering to carve out one-on-one time with children is important. And we only see that one scene where Luke is with both yeah. of his kids, right? We don't get a, much sense that he's really nurturing his relationship with Anna independently and with Ben independently, which would allow them, I think, to accept Isabel more easily into their lives, Anna in particular. What do you feel like the family does really well? So obviously, we only really see this one interaction with Luke and the family. What do you think between Luke and Isabella, what do you think that in terms of building that relationship or trying to kind of like integrate everyone together? What do you feel like are the strengths in terms of how they do that? Absolutely. There's a lot that Luke does well, for the record. Yes, <laughs> it yes. sounds like he's he, he's forgetting a lot of things, but this is hard. These are hard things to navigate. Absolutely. And and there is a lot that he does well. And I actually think that it really starts with his relationship with Jackie, his ex-wife. They they co-parent really well. They really are making an effort to put their kids first and to not put their children in the middle of their conflict. There's a line after Isabel loses Ben, so to speak, right? And and he ends up safe, but at the police department and they go pick him up. And Jackie says something like, I'm getting a lawyer. She's never going to see these kids again. And Luke says, Jackie, we promised we don't do that. We promised we would never do that. They clearly have made 
efforts and, and discussed that they are not going to make this ugly for their kids, that they really want to put their kids first, even when they sit down together as a united front to tell the kids that dad is marrying Jackie, and then later sitting them down to tell them about mom's diagnosis. They do those things together as a united front. Yeah. And that's incredible. That is so commendable. It's hard to do, but they do, they're doing that really well. Yeah, I really liked how they talk to their children about these kind of transitions. You know, that scene where it's kind of fun at the park was, you know, one thing. But also in that scene is where dad kind of like discusses divorce and falling out of love. And I think this is a really big thing. So when I've worked with clients as a therapist and Denzel, I'm sure um, you can attest to this as well. One of the things that clients get really worried about is like, how do we explain this to the kids? Like, how do we help them make sense of this? Uh, so what are the kinds of things, you know, we can think about Luke's conversation specifically, but you can think about kind of other things that you're aware of. What are the kinds of things in terms of having that conversation or even just like having these tough conversations about transition? So the things mm -hmm. that not just the divorce itself, but the remarriage and then uh, obviously the Jackie's diagnosis later, but what do you see that's either good in the, in the movie or things, other things you might be aware of? Yeah, two things. And in this order, first, validating children's emotions. Change is hard for everyone and especially for kids, right? It's a confusing time. We do tend to see that there is an initial drop in well-being for kids when they're experiencing change like this, such as parents' divorce, but that in the long term, most kids go on to do just fine, right? But there is an initial decline because change is really hard. It's confusing. It's sad. The first thing is validating children's emotions. So often, I think it's really tempting for parents to come in and say, everything's going to be okay. Don't feel sad. Don't feel sad. It's okay. And just really kind of with the best of intentions, kind of dismiss those emotions as something that kids shouldn't be worried about. Yeah. And there's so much power in saying, it's okay to feel sad. I feel sad sometimes too, right? I know that change is hard. It's okay to feel this way. Like there's so much power in validating what children are saying. But then following up with, and this is number two, here's what's not going to change. Here's what's staying the same. My love for you, that's not going anywhere, right? Here are the things that are not going to change. And both of those can be done at the same time. So, and I, and Luke does that, right? He says, yeah. I fell out of love with your mom. And they ask, can, can you fall out of love with your kids? Absolutely not, right? I could never fall. So, but parents could take the initiative to say, it's a really great question that the kids ask, right? Okay, so you yeah. fell out of love with mom. Can you fall out of love with me? Sometimes the things that kids are worried about, parents don't even think about, like, of course I couldn't fall out of love with you, right? This is another thing where kids tend to think that it's their fault. And from parents' perspective, yeah. well, of course it's not kids' fault, right? So they forget to say, by the way, this is not your fault. So really remembering what kids are, are thinking, what kids are feeling, and taking initiative to emphasize What's not going to change? Our relationship, my love for you. These are things that are staying the same. Yeah. And I for had forgotten about until we started talking that Jackie has a similar conversation with Anna mm. in terms of after Anna was telling lies to her teacher or whatever about moving to right. Switzerland. What was it? I don't even remember. But just kind of the way that Jackie kind of like validated her feelings and also kind of, like you said, kind of like listened to where she was coming from and like validated and like understood it, but also was like, things are going to change, but this is going to be like, I'm still going to like be there for you and things like that. Because I think that brings up an important point about like 
listening to kids. Because again, we kind of forget what it's like to think in the way kids do. So those things that, again, are really obvious to parents about like, oh, I'm never going to fall out of love with my kids or I'm, you know, I'm not, or it's not going to change. It's not your fault. Those kinds of things. Uh, our relationship are, isn't going to change in terms of like the depth of their emotions or whatever. Because um, again, kids are still putting together the world in general. So like just kind of like listening and kind of like getting in touch where they're coming from. Yeah. And their questions and concerns are so logical. When yeah. you occupy the mind of a three or four or five or six year old, right? Yeah. If the kids are overhearing conflict between their parents, as they likely are, that has to do with the kids, that has to do with child rearing, because parenting is hard and lots of conflict mm-hmm. tends to stem from that. Kids logically come to the conclusion, well, if I if I weren't here, mom and dad might not be fighting, right? And of course, that's not true. They'd be fighting about something else. But it's understandable that kids would reach that conclusion. And so, right, really emphasize it. There's no, there is no apparent harm in telling them too many times that it's not your fault, that I yeah. love you, that that's never going to change. Yes. And that validation is so important, too, because when you mentioned earlier, kind of like that well-intentioned, like, reassurance, everything's going to be like, everything, nothing's going to change, everything's going to be fine. Like when it's just like when you're kind of like not validating or hearing them first they're not going to be as open to bringing those things up because they feel like they're not being heard or feeling not being listened to. So like being able to like live in both worlds where you're, you're providing that reassurance, but not to the extent of like not listening to them. And like those, both of those things being so important to the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a really great clip that I show my students from the movie inside out. It's a Disney Pixar film about all of the, it's such a great movie. Great movie. At the very end, I'm going to spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Inside Out, but is planning to skip ahead. Um, At the end, at the end, I forget the daughter's name. It's going to come to me as soon as I finish talking about it. Yeah, I have no idea. Anyway, she. So Eric probably knows the voice actor, but doesn't know the actor. Or doesn't know the character's name. The voice actors are so great in all that. They do such a good job in that movie. I'm I'm pulling up AMDB as we speak, so I'll I'll help you out in a second. I love it. So she's struggling. The the premise is that the family has moved to a new state and the daughter is missing home. She's really struggling to adjust to her, her new life in this new state. And she runs away. And at the end of the movie, she, she comes back, her parents are so worried and she just starts crying. And she says, I, I just miss home. I'm so sad here. I'm so sad. I miss home. And her parents meet her at her level. She's, you know, smaller than they are. So they physically get down on one knee, which is also really powerful parents for parents. When you're talking at the same actual physical level, making eye contact with children they meet her where she is and and they say we miss home too we're sad too and they and they hug and it's this beautiful moment at the end of the scene of just emotional validation they're not saying everything's going to be fine it'll get better i promise they're saying we miss it too sometimes and it's okay to feel sad and and it's such a beautiful moment of connection and bonding and parents can apply that same lesson to talking to their children's emotional reactions about divorce right it's okay to feel sad Absolutely. Riley was her name, by the way. Riley. Riley. Oh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. No problem. <laughs> Speaking of the, the children, um, and, and like my therapist brain is just kicking in. And so Go I can have it. a and two questions, but I'll just ask the questions that I'll try to stick to the questions I think are going to be most 
I guess, prominent and prevalent yeah. to the conversation, right? And so, as someone who hasn't seen the movie and gaining greater context into this new family system that is forming, it sounds like there's two children within uh, that comes from the father in, in that previous relationship? Correct. Okay, how old are those children, roughly? Anna is about 12, and Ben's about 5 or 6. Yeah, I couldn't get a good sense for Ben's age. So about 12 and 5 or 6. And so I mm-hmm. recall earlier, much earlier in our conversation, you were uh, um, you know, just talking about how children, you know, they may have different ways that they may orientate to this new relationship based on like how long they've been, you know, within their more, I guess, uh, that first marriage and like having those family experiences to those experiences may be different for younger children. So does, do these two characters act very differently to this? And maybe we talk about this later. I don't know, but. Yes. No, I'm so excited to talk about Ben now. Ben is one of my favorite characters in this film at the young age of five or six. His reaction is entirely different from that of his sisters. Yeah. Ben is just hilarious. There's so many reasons why I, I love him in this movie. But he is much more receptive to Isabel's presence in his life at the same time as being undeniably influenced by his mother and her reaction to Isabel. So there's one line which I think about all the time. It's such a great line. They are horseback riding and they're talking about Isabel, Jackie, the mom is kind of indirectly making fun of Isabel, but Ben, you know, five or six, he's picking up on a lot. Jackie's kind of laughing and being lighthearted, but Ben's picking up on this. And he turns to her and he says, mom, if you want me to hate her, I will. And you can see in her face, this moment of realization, it's super quick, but this moment where she realizes the power that she has in shaping her son's perception of this woman. And It's such a reminder of kids are not biologically programmed to dislike parents, right? They are picking up on the messages, both in larger society, but also those of that their parents are imparting upon them. And it's such a powerful, such a powerful line of the extent to which Ben is both as a younger child, more malleable, more easily shaped more open to loving Isabel and also right on the edge of depending on where his mom goes with this, right? He, he very easily part of being more malleable and more receptive to Isabel is also being uh, shaped more easily perhaps by his mom's messaging. And so all sorts of research shows that stepchildren who are younger, when they acquire step parents have closer relationships with their step parents because they're more open, right? They have more uh, flexible, more fluid ideas of family and and who can be included in that family uh, circle. So yeah, I love that line. And yeah, go ahead. I could go on. I was going to say too that I really like how they push boundaries in such different ways. So Anna's pushing boundaries very directly and very much a way we'd expect kind of a teenager to push boundaries like with with any parent. Uh, And Ben's doing kind of like developmentally appropriate bounding pushing a little bit like kind of figuring out things with Isabella as well in terms of the very first scene being where he like hides on her to scare her, kind of like jump out of the cabinet and scare her. And just a couple other just like things he does that are just kind of like more um, little kid boundary pushing because again, it's a new environment. It's a new parent. It's time to push boundaries, see where the boundaries are in the situation. What is this going to be like? So I really like how 
we got the representation of, again, change and up, uprooting. And now I'm pushing boundaries because I have this new authority figure in my life, basically. And the way that different age kids do it is is kind of fun to see. So I'm glad there was like that little age gap between the two of them. I totally agree. And they both, I, this isn't a podcast about the acting of these two young actors, but it is incredible. <laughs> their Their performance in this movie, both of them are just absolutely breathtaking in their portrayals of of these characters and and we know that their characters emotional reactions i mean it just absolutely aligns with all of the research that we have about uh both gender but also age and in terms of kids reactions to parents repartnering yeah so let's um stay on with the kids too and start to talk about like things start to shift you know earlier on with ben but also with anna as well in regards to kind of this initial conflict phase they go through so what are the things that you saw that were things that either Isabella is doing or other or Jackie or Luke or the kids themselves are doing that kind of helps promote this kind of like change in relationship where it starts to become a little bit more um, less conflict, less boundary pushing and more kind of like loving and warm. Can I ask one more question even before we get into this? Oh, go um, for it. Just, just, just a, a piece of context because I think it's great. Like, I, you know, our audience thinks, you know, that they're coming in for relationship education and then. Here we are, they're getting more nuggets <laughs> of like, you know, family development, human development, how all these plays to a role into that process. And I think that's like absolutely amazing and great to be able to bring that, that context into that, right? And so not that we have to have a discussion on this question, just more so so I can have a sense of kind of where they are as a family is, I guess, when we think about like family development or in a sense, even them as a couple, I guess, where are they at in that stage of their relationship? Like, have they been dating for a while and like, They've known the children for a while or just their first time meeting. Just where are they at within that place? It's a great question. They, dad, whose name is Luke and Isabel, stepmom, they get engaged over the course of the movie. So when it starts, they're just dating, but you get the sense that they've been dating a little bit. You get the sense that it might be somewhat of a, of a quick engagement. If nothing else, then by Jackie's reaction, Jackie is clearly still struggling with the divorce. Like she has not healed her wounds from, from this, from the divorce. So you don't get the sense that much time has passed, but maybe a few months that Isabel has been in their lives and then they get engaged over the course of the movie. Yeah. And we don't know when that first meeting is maybe, maybe that does come up. We don't know when we don't see like the first meeting of Isabella and kids. It's kind of like the first scene you see is kind of assumed that they're at least familiar with each other because she's kind of like primary in charge of them for that moment. Okay. Yep. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. Appreciate it. Especially going into that great question that, that you're bringing up, Eric. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So thinking about this kind of like change in relationship, what do you think are the, uh, everyone's kind of doing to kind of like uh, engage that relationship? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll start with Luke, actually. The fact that Isabel has opportunities to bond with the kids is important. Sometimes we see especially with mothers, with, with biological mothers, an effort to gatekeep, to really control access to their kids a bit more and be reluctant to let stepfathers or the other step parent into the co-parenting circle. And Luke has to, to, not to say it's not quite stressful for Isabel because it clearly is, but, but he has allowed her to really be a presence in his kids' lives and have opportunities to bond with them. I mean, opportunity to bond one-on-one is really important for relationship development, right? And so Isabel clearly has those opportunities. 
But Isabel is incredible at repeated attempts to bond with her stepchildren, especially after those initial attempts are rejected. There's something in in the step family research called affinity building, which essentially refers to step parents' repeated efforts to get to know their children and just develop a friendship with them before step parents can fulfill any kind of parenting role, if they do at all. It's important to have a foundation of friendship that's established first. And that's established through efforts to befriend them, to get to know them, bond with them. And so Isabel's doing that repeatedly over the course of the movie, right? Those efforts are not well received initially by Anna, but Isabel is persistent in her efforts to bond. And eventually they start to be effective, right? Ben is clearly a bit more receptive to some of those, you know, Isabel's reading a story with him before bedtime. These small interactions are the stuff that relationship development is made of. Doesn't always have to include getting, you know, a puppy for your stepchildren, although that might be effective too. Um, but Isabel's persistent, and that's so important. There's There have been studies on affinity building and the both frequency and consistency of these efforts over time and, and how effective they are in establishing close relationships with stepchildren. And when step parents discontinue those efforts because stepkids have initially rejected those efforts, they're they're not likely to form close relationships with them, right? It's not uncommon for stepchildren to be slow to warm up to these efforts. Being consistent, not giving up is critical. And Isabel does that really well. And I really like how when it starts to go well, you know, the first time, because it's bonding kind of over art, which is kind of this overlap that they have, right? You know, Isabel is a photographer. Anna is doing like watercolors or painting of some kind. And it was great to see it. And and it wasn't something that Isabel like made a big deal out of or was like, oh, I do art too. Let's do this. Like she just kind of like, she asked permission. She was like, can I help? Um, Can I give it a try? Or she asked what the problem was. She did a really good job of kind of like being very respectful of the situation and kind of like using a mutual interest that they both have to kind of like build that relationship between the two of them. I love that scene. I love that scene. And you're absolutely right about she recognizes an opportunity where they have a shared interest. And that's also really important within the affinity building literature that step parents aren't trying to engage in activities that are about them and their interests but that are about stepchildren's interests and ideally overlapping interests, right? Mm -hmm. So that scene is really the first kink in the armor for Anna in terms of starting to (laughs) warm up, (laughs) starting to warm up to Isabel. And it's so small. There's nothing like Mm -hmm. grandiose about that scene. It's a very beautiful everyday interaction where she's trying to do this painting. She's super frustrated. And Isabel gives her a really small tip, a really small tip of something that she learned in her own background. And Annabelle's receptive to that. Anna, Anna, I combined their names, Annabelle. (laughs) Anna is receptive to Isabel's efforts. Yeah. It's such a beautiful scene. Yeah. And I I like that. I I think what makes it so good, and I don't know any research on this at all, so it's not backed by anything, but I think what made it so effective was the fact that she didn't make a big deal about it. Like she just Mm. kind of like went over and was like very nonchalant about it because like, I think if I was a rebellious teenager 
And I, if the other person was being very obvious about trying to bond with me, that would be really easier for me to like push back on. I totally agree. Whereas because it was kind of like soft and not nonchalant, it wasn't as something that you could like easily like push back on. Sorry. She pushed back a little bit. She's like, it's already ruined anyway or whatever she said. Right. But I just love like how it was done and how it was portrayed. I like that scene a lot as well. Oh, yeah. You do get the sense that Isabel is trying to quell her excitement. Maybe like she she recognizes that this was a small moment of bonding, but she's not going to push it. She gives Anna her space after that. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that we haven't talked about a lot yet, surprisingly, but it's something it doesn't really seem like it's a point of contention between Jackie and Isabella as like the relationship begins to grow. It comes and goes a little bit. But let's back up a little bit and just talk about the relationship between just the whole co-parenting kind of unit. So Luke included between the three of them and the conflict based on what we see in the movie uh, and how that kind of changes over time, because it it goes through a lot of like interesting, like kind of ups and downs throughout the movie. Absolutely. And we we do have very little research on again the nature between the nature of the relationship between moms and stepmoms but we do have plenty on how mothers co-parent after divorce and researchers at the University of Missouri did a study where they were interviewing mothers about how they let step parents into the co-parenting system after parents repartnered and You see it in this movie. Mothers see themselves as the captains of the co-parenting team, right? They are driving the ship. They see themselves as having primary responsibility for their children, and and they make decisions about what roles new step-parents should play in their children's lives. And Jackie is absolutely making decisions about the extent to which she wants Isabel involved in her kids' lives. Now, she doesn't have complete control over that, obviously. They're at Luke's house half the time. But in response to, for example, the scene where Isabel loses Ben, right? And, and Jackie says, you're never going to see my kids again. She sees herself as, as the captain of this team and as responsible for her kids' well-being. And that study really suggested that step-parents become more active participants in co-parenting once mothers perceive them to be adequate caregivers, right? So they really have to prove themselves as responsible adults in in the lives of these kids. And you get the sense that Jackie is getting the evidence over the course of the movie that this woman wants the best for her kids. She cares about them genuinely. And I think that's what starts to kind of chip away at Jackie's resistance to letting Isabel in. Yeah, I think specifically I'm thinking about the scene where Ben falls. Yeah. And they both go running. And then obviously uh, in the... um hospital room, but I really think it really comes to a head when Jackie kind of disclosed, well, when uh, Isabella assumes that Jackie's moving away, but Jackie ends up disclosing that she's um, sick and just how upset Isabella was. And she kept saying, you can't do that to her dad. And her dad's going to be so upset or their dad is going to be so upset. So like Luke would be so upset. And Jackie can very easily see that that's not the entirety of what's going on. And Isabella doesn't necessarily want to leave with that because I feel like she feels like that's not going to be received well. But I could definitely, you could definitely see, I think they did a both great job at acting in the scene in terms of like Isabella very clearly conveying it's not just about Luke and Jackie picking up on that. Absolutely. And part of what I mean, Jackie's able to do that because she's, she's, 
this is something I love about the whole movie. All, all of the adults are reasonable adults. Like they are, they're upset. They have these very human emotions, unhealed, unresolved wounds, right? But they're reasonable people. And it's important to be reasonable when you're navigating these family transitions. I mean, there's a, a great scene between Jackie and Luke when Jackie's on the porch, Luke is dropping off Anna's stuff for soccer. And they start to get into a, a conflict, right? Things start to get, they start to heat up. They're, they're using kind of negative communication tactics. Things are escalating. Yeah. And they, they start bringing up, you know, kind of kitchen sinking. Like they're bringing in past issues yeah. into the fight. All these old wounds are, are surfacing. And, and they step away. They, they separate, take a moment to calm down. All of the things that we know about healthy communication and relationships, right? That ones are kind of, Heartbeats are rising. Physiologically, our bodies are reacting in ways that make it difficult for us to think clearly and communicate clearly. They take a break and then they come back and they remember the most important thing, which is putting their kids first, right? And so Jackie, in that moment with Isabel, she's clearly upset. She's frustrated. She has all sorts of things going on, but she is reasonable enough to put her her kids first and recognize that this woman truly, regardless of what regardless of how jealous she might be about Isabel, this woman loves her kids. And, and just putting the kids first, focusing on the kids is the best thing parents can do when they navigate these transitions. Yeah. And thinking about that too, we can definitely see Jackie have some emotions that are complex when she sees the bonding between Isabella and her kids, right? So like with her singing to Ben and then... A couple of comments that Anna makes about like the, the boy or whatever that whatever in terms of yeah. Anna saying something to Jackie about like maybe I'll ask Isabella she's younger she knows this stuff more or something and like you know Jackie just kind of and then obviously how it ended up turning out with uh, Isabella giving her some very interesting advice and uh, Jackie not particularly approving of said advice mm-hmm. but is the, I, I'm just curious about those like complicated emotions that come from. From Jackie, and then just maybe in general, when we see like the bonding happening between step parent and child. Yeah, it's such a natural reaction for parents, but mothers in particular, again, because I think of these gendered ideologies about the central role of mothers and mothering to family life these ideas of intensive mothering, like there's very powerful images of moms as these, you know, just super moms, unconditionally loving and and supportive. And those stereotypes are in stark contrast to the very negative stereotypes of stepmotherhood, of course. But because of these cultural ideas about moms as being this all important presence in children's lives, it's very hard, I think, for, for parents to make space for a new adult figure, for moms to make space for stepmoms in the co-parenting system. And you can see Jackie struggling with it. I mean, it really is heartbreaking when she sees the, the interaction between Isabel and Ben in the hospital room. It's a beautiful moment between Isabel and Ben, but you can feel what Jackie's feeling in that moment, which is complicated, right? It's complicated. She recognizes that this is good for her son while being perhaps jealous about a bit insecure about her role in her children's lives. And obviously all of this is complicated by the fact that she has a a terminal diagnosis. And so she's thinking about, you know, she's thinking into the future, I think when she sees that interaction, 
But even when that's not the case, in my work with parents who are divorcing, it's quite common for them to fear that they're going to be replaced by letting in a new step parent. And there's just no evidence that kids think that way. If, if I get close to stepmom, I'll be less close to mom. Like they don't think of love as a finite resource where if you give yeah. some to this person, it takes away from this person. But parents often fear that if, if they get close to stepmom, I'm going to be less important in their life. And we just have no empirical evidence to back that up. But you can see that that's the fear that, that Jackie has as she's watching that go down. Yeah. And her and Isabella have that very frank conversation in the restaurant about like their greatest fear being that my daughter on my wedding day isn't thinking about me versus is only thinking about, you know, uh, her, her mom who's now passed. And just that very vulnerable moment they both shared with each other in terms of what their fears are. Absolutely. There, um, there are a lot of scenes where I could keep my researcher hat on and filter, <laughs> filter the plot through our empirical knowledge about these topics. And that's a scene that I just cannot keep my researcher hat on. It's just so heartbreaking and lovely and moving. And it's such a powerful scene. It's so powerful. But yes, I mean, they're being vulnerable with each other is is really a sta- it's really hard to do that, I think, especially after divorce. Parents want to feel like they have it all figured out. They know what they're doing. And both of them acknowledging that they're scared they don't know what they're doing. They're scared for the future. It's it's so powerful. Yeah, and all complicated by the um, yeah. you know the subplot of is or uh, excuse me, Jackie finding out that her cancer is a terminal. Maybe she didn't know it at that time. I can't remember exactly when if she knew it. Like things weren't working. Like, I know she was going through treatment and things like that. But I think at that point she knew that she was not gonna yeah um, continue. And you know that's such a complicating issue here. And we get this great ending with them at Christmas. Um, and even though Jackie is clearly feeling the effects of cancer and the treatment or everything that she's been going through, that they have kind of like a full family moment where everyone's kind of like together and they take that photo at the very end. And obviously it's a very long process to get there and it took up its and downs, right? So there are parts where you know, Jackie and Isabella seem kind of on the same page. Like at the play, they're both there. I really like that scene where Isabella's like, hey, just a heads up. This is what she told me. She's going to ask you for advice about it tomorrow. Like this kind of like yeah, co-parenting conversation, but not just like, hey, when are you going to pick the kids up? It's this like sharing the emotional labor almost as much as just kind of like the physical, like being a parent labor. And, you know, not that long after that, they have another pretty big conflict. Like it's this up and down Things. So what are mm-hmm. the things that you've seen them do? I know we've talked about this a lot, maybe in um, as we've gone on, but what are kind of like the big things that stick out to you as like, how do we go from this big transition yeah. to an integrated step family or um, blended family? It's a great question. Again, there's been a lot of work on this done at the University of, of Missouri. Dr. Tyler Jameson, who I know is on the podcast, she's done some of this work too. I think mm-hmm. she was in the study where They interviewed parents, and there's lots of work on this, but parents who have successfully renegotiated co-parenting boundaries. And from that study in particular, there were three big things that parents did well, all of which you can see in this movie. So the first involves cognitive reorganization, which involves learning to think about your ex and your ex's new partner differently your ex in particular, thinking about this person differently than when you were married, right? So 
thinking about this person not as your ex, but as your child's other parent or as your business partner or whatever you need to remember that the romantic element of that relationship is no longer there, but the the parenting, co-parenting element is still there, right? So just learning to think about this person differently. Anytime you see Luke and Jackie start to engage in conflict, and anytime you see Jackie kind of frustrated or jealous of Isabel, you get the sense that it has to do with, again, her unresolved wounds about the divorce, right? She has hurt feelings, understandably, Mm -hmm. but thinking not about her feelings, but about her children, that these are, are responsible, good people in the lives of my kids. That cognitive reorganization, I think, is something she gets better at throughout the movie. Another element involves effective reorganization. And this is something absolutely you can see improve over the course of the movie. So this essentially means choosing how, when, and to whom to express negative emotions. It is okay that Jackie is feeling negative emotions about Luke and about Isabel. It's okay that that those emotions are there. What's important is what parents do with them. And at the beginning of the film, you see her making negative comments about Isabel and about Luke at times to the kids. And the kids are influenced by that, right? We call it parental inappropriate disclosure. So just making negative comments to the kids about the other parent or letting them in on details that developmentally, they're just not, it's not appropriate for them to know that information. It's it's bad talking, bad mouthing the other parent, right? And Jackie's doing that at the beginning of this film. And I think they all make a decision over the course of the movie to not put the kids in the middle, right? longitudinal studies uh, 20 years after kids have had their parents divorce consistently show that the most stressful part of parents divorcing is when their parents put them in the middle of conflict yep. and bad mouthing the other parent is part of that. So it's okay that Jackie has these negative emotions, but she gets better at ha- what she does with those emotions, yeah. not letting the kids know about them. And you can tell there are times where she's trying not to say negative things. Like she really wants <laughs> yeah. to, but she's trying. Kids still pick up on that, but like you, you give her credit. But there are also times where she just kind of lets that down a little bit um, when she's especially upset or when it kind of like really builds up for her. But yeah, that's consistently thinking about again when I'm working with clients, like that being like the thing. And like this can be really hard because sometimes there are situations where you might not trust the other parent to be a good parent, or you might not trust the step parent to be responsible or things like that. And like, it can be very difficult, especially if there is a history of something like abuse or something like something really serious, like really serious hurt that's there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just that, that ability to, I, I, what was the term? I had never heard the term before. Effective. Effective reorganization. Yeah, I lo- I love that term of just kind of like being able to kind of like redirect some of those feelings and like being okay to have those feelings, but to kind of like know the appropriate way to show them and when and to who. Absolutely, absolutely. The study really outlined kind of three types of reorganization: cognitive, so changing the way that you're thinking about this person; affective, or changing your affect, changing your emotion, how you express those emotions. And then behavioral. So, you know, negotiating new ways of exchanging information and making decisions mm-hmm. about the children and like working out the logistics of childcare and things like that. But yeah, the end, you know, that end scene, the end goal of a family event celebrating holidays together with everyone there, everyone benefits when when parents are able to negotiate, renegotiate these relationships in healthy ways. 
kids benefit, the parents, I mean, every, everyone benefits, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I really like about this movie. And again, we don't see what happens after Jackie passes. We don't know what that looks like. And, you know, if that wasn't a subplot, you know, I think this scene would have been really powerful in the same way, right? Like it would have been powerful in like a, they, they're going to have, they have good things on their horizon as a, as a uh, integrated family. I totally agree. And yeah, I, interestingly, I, I didn't really know this until I watched it recently, but I Googled the movie and the critics, the reviews by critics were incredibly mixed. Like there was a lot of negative, uh, yeah, many negative reviews of this movie, but at the box office, it did incredibly well. So the audience reaction was very positive, but the critic reaction was very, very mixed. And, and some of what I read was about that exact point that, you know, the, the plot storyline of that terminal diagnosis wasn't really needed. And I do think there's something to be said for that, that even if that piece of it weren't there, I do think that that scene at the end would have been just as powerful, but it does kind of heighten the emotional response to everything that happens in the movie. Yeah, I was, I was, that's what I thought about is like, you know, the intention of it and to either heighten it or kind of like streamline this relationship between mom and stepmom or however they wanted to use it. And I was just, you know, I think it's powerful in a way, but there are times where I think about like, Oh, maybe it wasn't, wasn't there, but I really like it how it's constructed. So I'm not like saying it should have been there or anything like that. I love it. Do you have any other thoughts on the movie or things that you didn't get a chance to talk about in terms of your research that you want to take the opportunity to like, make sure you throw out there? I don't know. We've covered a lot. I really feel like, Everything, all of my favorite moments, favorite lines have been covered. I guess I, one other thing, you know, when dad, it's really is incredible this moment when dad and mom and dad sit down and tell the kids that, that he's decided to marry Isabel. Um, Anna has a line. She says, no one asked me when you got a divorce. No one asked me if I wanted a new mother. No one even asked me if I liked her. Right. It really does illustrate the involuntary nature of the step-parent-stepchild relationship. This is not a relationship that stepkids have signed up for, right? Their parents have, but stepchildren are kind of along for the ride in the development of the stepfamily. And I think it's important to remember that. It takes children a long time, especially older children, pre-adolescent or adolescent children. It, It can take them a long time to warm up to these transitions and to warm up to step parents. And often I think parents want that timeline to be rushed. Like they're excited about this new person and they want their kids to be excited about this new person too. But kids operate on a slower timeline and they didn't sign up for this family transition. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I thought that that was illustrated really nicely. And ultimately, you know, everyone keeps going. No one gives up at trying to ultimately, you know, make these relationships positive and and close and the end result is beautiful. So I I think there's so much about this movie that the writers did well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many other things to talk about too. You know, we didn't even get really a chance to get into like the grief process that the family's going through and the kids and how big a thing that is. And I really like the conversation. This is kind of like uh, very tangential to like the, the, the children, but the conversation that Luke and Isabella have where Luke proposes. Um, because it's a very much a, a great way of kind of like explaining these concepts that we talk about in terms of like sliding versus deciding that we've talked about on the podcast before. So you can go back to other episodes if you want to go back and look or Google it. Uh, but this idea of like 
really making trans or making decisions about relationships as opposed to just doing what the next logical thing is. And he kind of like really represented that as like when I, Jackie and I got out of college, the next thing to do was to get married and then have kids. And they kind of like, were just kind of going through the motions. And he talked about how he wants to continue to make that decision with her about staying with her and things like that. And that is just a, it shows a lot of growth on his part and the lessons he learned from his previous relationship. And that's really hard too, because when we talk about divorce, something that people talk about a lot uh, is like, you know, your second marriage is more likely than a divorce or, uh, and so on or whatever. But when you can take away these lessons and learn from your experience, I think that kind of like really promotes having positive relationships down the road. And I thought that was great. One last thing that definitely isn't important at all, uh, but my wife wanted me to point it out. Well, she didn't want me to, but I told her I was going to. So my wife is, she grew up like riding horses and stuff like that. And she pointed out in the middle that during the horses scene, that there was a horse that was definitely defecating, but they edited it out. <laughs> so you're kidding. So she oh. could tell by the way the horse was acting that there was, you know, that was happening, but they had edited out the uh, dropping that happened. So she wanted to make sure that was, or she didn't want, I wanted to make sure that I pointed that out in the podcast. So that is hysterical. And I'm obviously about to go rewatch the movie and see which scene. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's the second uh, scene where they're all on the, when the, shoot, now I can't remember if it's one that we're doing the pictures or the one where um, Jackie says the thing about Isabella making a lot of money and, and Ben asked that question that you brought up earlier about yeah. um, hating her. So I can't remember which one it is. Uh, I wish I could help you out. I'll find it. I'll find but it. But you'll find it. Okay. But that that is something that my wife pointed out as we were going through it. Too funny. Too funny. <laughs> but yeah, no, to your point about this lighting versus sighting, I, I've seen this movie so many times and I got your outline and it had a note mm-hmm. in there about the proposal scene and sliding versus the sighting. And I thought, what? What is the connection? And I wa- I rewatched it and I thought, oh, nice. oh my gosh, there's literally no better dialogue to represent the concept of sliding versus deciding than that exchange. It's incredible. Yeah, it's so, it's almost as if they had like used that term intentionally <laughs> and how they wrote it. It was, it was yeah. very well done. So I just thought that was so funny that it was so perfect. It, it had very little to do with all the things we we're going to talk about, but I figured we needed to shout it out because it, it fits so well. Well, I do think, though, that it ties into, to your point about, obviously, the importance of these transitions being explicit decisions that we have discussed and have been thought through. Something that we don't get a lot out of of this movie are the discussions that Luke and Isabel have had about the role that she's going to play in the children's lives. So often, couples who are repartnering or remarrying don't have these explicit conversations about the role of the step-parent. And because it's already an ambiguous role, we don't really have like social guidelines for how to step parent in the best way. And women in particular are kind of like we discussed at the intersection of these contradictory guidelines for expected behavior where they're expected to be both highly involved as women and families, but then less involved as step parents. And so it is incredibly important for parents who are introducing a step parent into their kids' lives to have explicit conversations, to decide explicitly as opposed to slide, to decide what the role of this person is going to be. Couple consensus is incredibly important uh, when they're on the same page. And it's actually predictive of the likelihood of divorcing in your second marriage if, if parents are on the same page about these things. So we don't get a lot about, we don't have much insight into how dad and Isabel are having these discussions or if they are. 
But to your point about sliding versus deciding, having explicit discussions between parents who are repartnering about the role of this new person in the lives of your kids is super important. Yeah. In general, when you make these assumptions, especially about ambiguous social relations of some kind, I teach human sexuality. So that's another one where there's ambiguous expectations of what happens during sexual encounters. So sometimes new interactions can be very awkward or don't go the way you want. And parenting, again, like there's so many different ambiguous ways to parent. And like sometimes we assume that our co-parent or our spouse or whoever is going to parent in the same way we would uh, when there's lots of different value differences we might have. And having those conversations is so important. The movie Stepmom is a portrayal of a simple step family where one parent is bringing children into the partnership as opposed to a complex step family where both partners are bringing children into the, into the new relationship. Isabel doesn't have children of her own, right? But if she did, there would be a whole nother set of dynamics involved. There would be step-sibling relationships. There would be step-parent, step-child relationships on both sides. In complex step families, especially, yeah, having explicit discussions about the role of step parents in the family system, being on the same page about parenting philosophies, it just introduces a new level of complexity, which makes the necessity of having explicit discussions about step parenting roles and consensus about that even more important. So uh, something to keep in mind, stepmom, love the film so much, but it is a portrayal of a simple step family and complex step families have another layer of structural complexity. And there's so much diversity to step families, blended families. Like there's so much differences just in like the configurations, you know, amount of kids, whether there's like you said, step siblings or another partner, you know, whatever the case is that I think it's really important just to acknowledge as well in terms of like, you know, if you know one, you don't know them all. There's so much complexity to that. And we have ideas in terms of, on the aggregate, what's helpful and things like that. But there are certainly just like with anything else, there are certain differences that, you know, would alter how things are done compared to maybe this one example or an example, you know, in your real life or whatever the case is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So important. Yep. If you take nothing else away from this today, know that there's a, there's a lot that can happen in between being a stepmom or being a Brady Bunch. Oh my goodness. You had that. (laughs) How long you been sitting on that? (laughs) Well, just as you as you were wrapping up your your final thought and comment, but. I love it. I love it. It's so true. Yep. Love it. I just had this, you know, something kind of fun to end on. I don't know because we kind of mentioned at the top how so many portrayals of families like this are often because of a dead parent, and it's to you know, it's a lot of times I'm sure it's to make it simpler. I think sometimes it's like a, a value thing, like not wanting to like touch divorce because people have such negative feelings about that but also because it's just cleaner in terms of like telling a quicker story. But I just thought it'd be kind of fun if we reimagined common movie or a show or something like that as a family where there was divorce as opposed to death or whatever else happened. Do you happen to have any thoughts or ideas or did you think of anything as, as you read that or thought about that? It's such a fun question. My mind immediately went to all of the Disney fairy tales with wicked stepmothers because reimagining those stories with, living biological mothers just completely changes the storyline in a way that I thought was, yeah, fun to think about or entertaining. It did make me think of this fun fact, which is kind of neither here nor there, but it is a fun fact. Traditional fairy tales actually used biological mothers as the antagonist throughout history. So in the original rendition of Snow White, in the original rendition of Snow White, she was persecuted by, yeah, her biological mother. And then in 
attempts to restore the sacred image of motherhood, wicked mothers were transformed into wicked stepmothers by like the turn of the the 18th century. So it wasn't always the case that mothers were stepmothers were represented in evil ways and in, in mo- the Disney fairy tales that we see today. Have you ever seen the um, Saturday Night Live sketch where kids can get a like a stepchild doll instead of actual child doll? No. Oh, it's, it plays into a lot of like the negative stereotypes and kind of makes fun of them, but it, it's kind of funny. What is the skit? I think it's it's basically oh gosh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but you it's like a doll you give to your child. So it was a commercial. Um and it's a doll you give to your child, but instead of it being your child, it's your stepchild. And it's just kind of it plays into a lot of like the stereotypes of how it handles and there's some like gosh, I don't remember the sketch. That's so interesting. I thought that it might play into how we use like stepchild as a pejorative, like the ugly, you know, the redheaded stepchild. Mm. It is food for thought that the extent to which we still use certain step family language as a pejorative for all sorts of contexts. Like if you Google redheaded stepchild or ugly stepchild and click on the news stories, you'll just see a ton of news stories that use that term that have nothing to do with families, but it's so often used yeah. still as a pejorative. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. And this this sketch played more on like the um, pejorative of like the evil stepmom kind of like. Got it. But yeah, I didn't even think about like the the redheaded stepchild or the, um, the the ugly stepchild kind of like terms that people just kind of throw out there as if it's a usable term. It's one. It's definitely one of those terms. I can't remember what the what the term is, but like the term for like words that we kind of like use in everyday life. We don't necessarily think about the impact of. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that there's even a reference in stepmom. She makes a comment like, "Oh, is my." ugly stepmother oh, showing. Yeah. <laughs> that was really funny. I like that. As a nod to these stereotypes. And we see it, you know, all of my research with stepmoms speaks to some of these challenges, but also the reluctance to speak out or to seek support for some of these challenges because there's such a fear of reinforcing the, the evil stepmother stereotype. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these challenges, you know, stepmoms might kind of go through in isolation because they're worried about reinforcing the stigma surrounding stepmotherhood. But yeah, one of my, again, neither here nor there, but one of my favorite stepmother portrayals is Meredith Blake in The Parent Trap. She is uh, so demonized as like this evil stepmother, but I actually Mm. think she's so iconic as this young independent woman who just never asked for, she she doesn't want kids and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyway. Yeah. I was going to say my example was going to be, Denzel, you don't have any HEPA thought of anything, have you? Like a, a family that's played up, that's um, not a divorce, but it would be interesting to see it played out as if it was a divorced family. No, go for it. Okay. The one I had is Full House, which I never really watched. Mm. However, I just think it would be an interesting storyline instead of, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure mom died. Instead of mom dying, it's a divorce. And then dad's friend moves in with him like i feel like that's a really interesting like complex way of talking about this if it's you know moving on to maybe a same-sex couple or something like that as opposed to it being just a friend which i feel like is like almost like their way of doing it in back when it was done but anyway i just feel like that'd be like a really fun take on full house so again if there's anyone from hollywood listening i got ideas you don't have to keep ruffling out fuller house (laughs) we can make a new version i love that gonna have dense house like what would you call it i don't know i have not full more full more full house um, act house. <laughs> act house there you go <laughs> no i love it 
as you said that I was rethinking the Brady Bunch with with still living non-residential parents yeah. in the picture. That'd be really interesting. I would like a reboot of the Brady Bunch as a post-divorce step family as opposed to a post-bereavement step family. Yeah, we're gonna table the full house um idea. We'll go Brady Bunch first. I think that that really <laughs> makes the most sense. So um if any any writers are listening. I reach out to us about that project first. And if that goes well, we'll take on the next one. I love it. I like Brady Bunch first because then like, what if the other partners also remarried? I just want to see how many boxes oh they goodness. can fit on the room. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> thanks to all of you for listening. And a special thank you to our editor, Sandra Lynn Paul. If you have your own podcast or would like to start a podcast and you need help with the editing producing, or marketing of your podcast, you can find Sandra at sandralynco.com. That's S-A-N-D-R-A-L-Y-N-N-C-O.com. If you'd like to become a part of Relevation Nation and get daily updates that can help elevate your relationship, you can follow Relevate on Twitter at MyRelevate or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MyRelevate. See you next time.